This is the latest talk on the Breakfast with Jesus channel. I just want to say in opening, uh, during the talk, uh, I've got a slip of the tongue where I'm talking about Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. Um, in my enthusiasm, enthusiasm, I said Jeremiah chapter 7 and I think chapter 22 and 23. So don't get confused. It's Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 23. Well, welcome to the next installment of Breakfast with Jesus, in which I share some of the uh, thoughts and reflections that uh, I've had in my daily meditations with Anne and I, on the book of Jer Jeremiah at the moment. Uh, let me open up uh, by uh, acknowledging um, a comment from a friend of ours, Peter Dart. In the, in the last talk, I was talking about uh, Eric Auerbach and his seminal work where he contrasts Homer and the Old Testament and the language uh, of the two. And in that talk, I said I, I wasn't aware of anybody who had developed this contrast um, between Hebrew thought and Greek thought. Uh, Peter wrote to me and said, yes, uh, Robert Alter did. So uh, Robert Alter is, of course, the renowned Jewish scholar of the Bible. Uh, he's a, a literary guy, and he's acknowledged Auerbach's influence over him. So thanks, Peter. And if you haven't any of you read any Robert Alter, give it a go. But this talk is a really, a really interesting one. It's, it, it, it's really been on my heart for, for a good while. Um, it's, it's a strange talk because I'm going to combine a really granular snippet from Jeremiah chapter 7 with a really broad topic that I think is uh, very controversial and very much in the foreground today. Uh, I call this talk, and the, and the title's actually really important, What God Really Wants, The, the Battle for the Mind. Uh, and I think why that's important will emerge. Now, what's the context or the issue uh, that I'm referring to here? Well, I think currently there is a real battle over the character of God amongst believers. I think that uh, there, is a, there is a debate which is growing between rival conceptions of God and the gospel. Now, on the one hand, you've got the traditional model, which I call the judicial model, uh, which is a forensic framework. Um, God is therefore the magistrate, and there is a uh, untransgressible, inalienable law that must be obeyed. And in this particular model, our failure to obey that law is the big problem. That's called sin. And this is the problem that must be solved. Now, the Contrasting model um, is what I could call the creational model or the relational model. Uh, that has a different starting point that views the starting point of all things as creation, uh, views progress, including judgment, as educational, not retributive, and sees God as the lover and bridegroom and sees reciprocation of God's love as his goal. I think, um, and obviously in gospel conversations, we're very much in the, uh, in the camp of that second model. 
the judicial model, I really think, is doing enormous pastoral harm. Um, I think it's a model that hangs over people's heads, whether they admit it or not, um, with anxiety, um, guilt that they're not witnessing to people, and a general sense of doom. You know, the horizons of reality are framed by a sense of doom and fear of judgment. Uh, it fuels inadequacy and insecurity. Uh, it's recently been played out in a debate, uh, which I think is very important, between two Douglases, Doug, Douglas Moo and Douglas Campbell, which is available on YouTube. I'd highly recommend it. It's um, uh, on the topic of justification by faith. Now, um, in in this in the judicial model, which Douglas Moo, who's who's a eminent conservative evangelical scholar, and by the way, one really nice thing about the debate is very structured, very civil between the, the two guys, and I think it really is helpful in clearly advancing two different cases, and you can listen to it and sort of make your mind up. Uh, but in in the judicial or the forensic model, and, that, and Douglas Moo uses that word throughout his framing of the reform theology. God is typified as, as holding us to account for his standards. Uh, and this makes God the ultimate auditor. Um, he is measuring our compliance against a rule book. Um, the rule book's a bit fuzzy as to exactly what it is, but it's a, it's a pretty big rule book. Um, we don't know all the rules. We're sure to be breaking them all the time. Um, and, you know, uh, hence the sense of, um, I suppose, futility in trying to obey it. Now, Mu himself says in, in this debate, pretty well verbatim, uh, God is bound, that was the word he uses, bound, by standards which he cannot transgress. Um, and these standards come out of his character. So this really puts forward a certain picture of not just God, but of the, of the ordering principle of the cosmos being um, standards which come out of, uh, out of God's character. Um, an NIV, the, uh, one of the NIV study Bibles says something you know, very similar in a sidebar note on Jeremiah, which is something along the lines of, because God's character demands that justice must be satisfied, God does not vent his anger as a tantrum, but to preserve the integrity of his holiness. So I think they're fair characterizations of the judicial model. Now, what emerges out of this is an Old Testament picture of God. Um, uh, the old, you know, I'm, I'm probably using a colloquialism here, but let's just say there's a general picture, including amongst non Christians of, of, of the sort of angry judicial God of the Old Testament, the holy God. And the picture of, of God that emerges here is a picture that I think is based around God's honour. His honour must be satisfied. It's a bit like a schoolmaster who's got a lot of rules that we must obey. And, uh, or, or I think the, certainly the concept of honour, it's a very medieval concept, um, uh, you know, the honour, particularly of the kings and the hierarchy, uh, the despots, their dignity, uh, you know, must be preserved. 
Um, and, and in this picture, the primary attribute the, uh, of God is, is his holiness, his holiness. Um, and frankly, the love of God becomes derivative. It, 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 it has to be admitted, and, and it's really revealing in the debate how on the back foot Douglas Moo is about this when uh, Douglas Campbell challenges him. You know, yes, yes, God is loving, but really it's his holiness that is the primary explanatory model of God. Um, and the love of God becomes a yes but qualification. And, and so grace, which is, is obviously the handmaiden of love, is, becomes a compensating move by God and it's presented as such. And, and you know, the gospel is essentially becomes something along the lines of, I've heard this so many times in sermons um, or versions of it, God is holy, we are sinful and therefore we're destined for judgment, i.e. hell, but Good news, Jesus died for our sins, so we can be thankful. Now, I don't think that's, that's an unfair characterization of, of, the, of the logic of the argument. But the grammar of that sentence captures the logic of the thinking, which is Jesus is a plan B. It's a yes, but move on God's part. Now, one of the points Douglas uh, Campbell keeps making in the debate is Jesus, you can't have plan B. He's got to be plan A. Um, but this framework does position the gospel and it minimizes it as, as, a, as, a, as a counter move. Um, and, and it allows the gospel, the gospel to become a mere solution to the problem it is solving. Well, uh, what's wrong? What's wrong with this forensic holiness model of God's character? Uh, I think... Uh, that, that it makes a fundamental error. Um, and the error is, at a conceptual point, it begins with character, but not with intention. And that is a fundamental flaw, which I want to um, explain. So, the inadequacy I'm going to talk about will be on two fronts. First of all, the inadequacy of character as an explanatory mechanism. And secondly, within that, the inadequacy of holiness as the attribute of character we focus on. So why do I say character is an incomplete picture of God or, or anyone? Well, um, an attribute, which is what a character has, is actually a series of adjectives. Uh, you know, you could say something like a person is introverted or they're extroverted. You could say a person is imaginative or you could say they're detailed. Uh, you could say a person is innovative and a risk taker or they're conservative. So, so they have certain qualities and attributes that define them. And the, ca you know, the, 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 the ca category that holiness fits in is that th this is the category applied to God. What's wrong with that? Well... None of these things tell us anything about the intent of that particular person. Imagine a leader, and they could be introverted, they could be extroverted, they could be imaginative, they could be detailed, but that doesn't tell us what they intend to do with the country. What's their vision? What sort of country do they want to create? Is it going to be a liberal um, free market economy? 
or is it going to be a economy characterised with um, social service safety nets? That, that's, that's not intrinsic at all to the issue of their character. That's their intent. So character doesn't tell me a lot, enough. I mean, it's obviously important, but it doesn't tell me enough about what they're going to do. It's intention that will tell me a lot more. So just as a general category, um, character's an inadequate portrait of anybody, let alone God. So secondly then, what about holiness? Uh, in what way is that attribute a, a misleading or inadequate picture of the heart of God? Um, well, if you say that God is holy and righteous, as we've just said, they're, they're adjectives, but the picture of God that emerges is self-referencing and static. Holiness is a ethical quality. It's not a relational quality. Put simply, holiness as a characteristic does not explain what God wants to do or what he did. It just, it just is agnostic about that. In particular, holiness, quote unquote, does not explain his desire to create existence all the cosmos, all humanity. It doesn't say anything about that. It's vacuous about those things. If you say God is holy, well, you could well have a God who does not create anything at all. As a matter of fact, it might be more logical for this quote-unquote holy God not to create anything at all because it would be jolly risky to his holiness to create anything at all. So there's nothing intrinsic in holiness that I can think of that demands um, expression demands amplification, demands sharing, demands giving or molding, all of which are features of the, the synonyms of creation. I think it gets a bit worse than that because if this holy God did happen to create something, uh, well, there's going to be a very big leap between his character and his actions. One thing's for sure, his relationship with that creation will be a measurer or an auditor but not of a creator, because holiness doesn't tell us anything about his creating uh, drive. So holy gods, what do they do? They measure things, they judge things, but they don't necessarily create anything. So this picture is logically very, very inadequate. Um, now, you might think that doesn't matter. I think it really does matter. I think it really does matter for, you know, the, a lot of good reasons that I'm sure will occur to many of you, but one of them is that when Job is trying to understand God, um, God says, you want to understand me, stand beside me at creation. Um, so, um, the inadequacy of holiness. Love is different because love is intrinsically a richer concept that is much closer to intent and to creation. Um, if you have love as the primary quality, you, are, you do have an inevitable move to creation for this simple reason. Love cannot be self-referencing. Can't be. It demands a beloved. It demands a creation. Now, this takes us to intent because intention is how anything begins and love is what drives intention. They're twins, they're, they're 
entwined. They're Siamese twins, love and intention. Um, unlike holiness, love demands amplification. It demands action. It generates activity. It's got momentum in it. And thus it is the framing principle for creation. So creation is intrinsic in love in a way that it is not intrinsic in holiness. Which leads us to the question that if intent is so important, then shining the light on intent is critical. Now, uh, it's obvious this is what Paul does all the time. I won't go there now, but the Ephesians 1 is peering into the intention of God in creating the cosmos. So I'm, I'm on solid ground here. And I mean, intent's a word that could seem a little bit clinical. So that's why I really like the phrase, what does God want? And this is the primary question we must ask. Now, this takes us to this snippet, which is how I'll finish. Um, and it's, it's, it's a snippet from Jeremiah 7, uh, chapter 22 and 23. Now, in this chapter, um, Jeremiah writes, and this is how the um, NIV translates it. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. When I brought your forefathers out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command, obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people. Clearly this verse is pretty important because it's getting to the, to the motivations of God in bringing the people out of Egypt, which as we've seen elsewhere, the, the whole exodus is really a picture of redemption and God's interaction with uh, humanity. So what's wrong with that? Well, the English Standard Version translates that differently. It doesn't say, when I brought your forefathers out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them the commands. It says, when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, obey my voice. Now, this is a really big difference because... On the one hand, if you say, uh, as the NIV says, um, I didn't just command, you are really um, minimizing uh, that first sentence and you are essentially saying, look, you're having a bet each way. You've got to have the commands, you've got to have the burnt offerings, but as well as that, um, I want to be your God. I want you to be with me. Um, the just actually completely changes the meaning of the sentence. Whereas in the English Standard Version, it's quite dramatic. It's quite shocking. You know, I, I mean, when I read it, I was shocked. I was reading the English Standard Version. It says, when I brought you out of Egypt, I did not give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifice. Well, you know, we did. It said, well, they're in Leviticus. So it was like, What? But the emphasis is, I get, but I gave them this command. I want you to obey my voice. And it doesn't even say, 
obey the English standard version is obey my voice, not obey me. And I shall be your God and you shall be my people. It's this relational uh, desire. So I thought, oh, this is interesting because I think the NIV is minimizing the extremity of this statement. So I wrote to Ian Proven and I asked Ian, which is correct, and this is what he said. Well, he says the Hebrew is just as the English Standard Version states it. In other words, the translators of the NIV have interpolated the word just to soften the meaning. Um, Ian says, you know, what does Jeremiah mean? It's, he says he, he feels it's an attention-getting piece of rhetoric designed precisely to make the general biblical point that there are weightier and less weighty aspects of the commandments of God and that the people need to get the order of priority right. The NIV tries to capture this, but it doesn't do it very well. He says, I believe that the real sense of the line is what God was really on about was relational integrity, not rituals, which, we, which were simply meant to embody the core commitments. And if you don't understand this, Israel, you might as well just eat your own sacrifices. Um, so, the English Standard Version is shining a light on the, what God really wants. It, the commandments, the rituals were of little interest to God. What he wanted was a relationship with the people. That's what was driving him. And it's so extreme that in this rhetorical flourish, the prophet says, I, I wasn't even interested in all those commandments, all the Levitical commandments. They're, they're, they're not. They're means to an end. That's all they are. And if you elevate them, if you prioritize them, you've missed the whole point. I want to know you. I want to be loved by you. I want to be your God. I want to be in communion with you. I want to be in fellowship with you. That's what I really want. Clearly, um, this, I think, uh, it, it's really relevant to what we're talking about because the picture that emerges is not a picture of a God bound to a rule book. It's not a picture of a God whose great interest is compliance with a series of laws. He says, I'm not interested in that. What interests him, what drives him more than the people of Israel was to walk with them, to walk with them and talk with them and for them to understand him. So the battle that emerges is not a battle over keeping rules, rituals and codes. It's a battle for the knowledge and love of God on the earth, which is what Israel was lo- had lost. Judah had lost this by this time. It's a battle for God to be loved and known and understood. So we can generalize out of that, getting close to the heart of God's purpose in creation, which we can see is a theme that I think frames the Old Testament, that what God wanted was for humanity to know him and to understand him. Um, And um, what's very clear in the book of Jeremiah is that this battle for the knowledge of God on the earth is what underlies the so-called sins to which Jeremiah alludes throughout the book. Um, His context was that 
Israel had uh, syncretized the, their religions. Um, they, they had, it, if they hadn't gone to full-scale idolatry, they'd gone to some kind of compromise systems begun with Jeroboam. And as such, the knowledge of God on the earth. I mean, you understand that in the time that Jeremiah lived in, this was the only candle burning on the earth for the knowledge of God. There was no other monotheistic religion on the planet. There never had been a, a, a monotheistic religion, anything like this one. Um, nobody, God had never so intimately spoken to people. And what if that candle went out? Because it was going out. It was really going out. So the battle for the knowledge of God was being lost. Um, but of course, what this the, the corollary of that is what God wants is for humanity to know him. And I think that really um, changes the picture of the God of the Old Testament from this judicial God um, who is demanding compliance to the law to the lover who wants to be known. Um, and of course, that knowledge does lead to the responsibility of obedience. Of course it does, but it's love that comes first and frames everything. Uh, so I think uh, in, in, in another talk, I might just develop a little bit more of that knowledge, um, the, the knowing of God. Um, but for the moment, let me leave you with these thoughts and uh, pray that they bless you.